The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Start off with a question, a theoretical question, just to bring it home a little bit. Say you join Saturday Evangelism next Saturday, which resumes. And you go door to door and you knock on the door and you have opportunity. And somebody rarely actually is willing to talk to you instead of slamming the door in your face. And you know you probably have just a brief moment to present the gospel. So my question to you is, what passages from the Bible are your go-to passages when you have a limited window of sharing the truth of the gospel with probably an unbeliever? What passages, what book, what chapter? Just think about that in your own mind. For some of you, that'll be a practical reality six days from now on Saturday, Saturday evangelism. Have you thought about that? Are you deliberate about that? Pretend, or pretend you're an elder at Creekside Bible Church, and you have an inquiring person who wants to join the church and become a member. Well, step one is we sit down and we listen to their understanding of the gospel. And so the elders are focused in. So if you are an elder or listening or screening and vetting those who are giving their testimony, what are some key scriptures that might be your go-to passages as you listen very carefully trying to discern if this person understands the gospel? Or maybe you're a parent and you have young children they are inquiring about baptism. Mommy, Daddy, can I get baptized? And, you know, well, you've got to be a Christian to be baptized, and so you want to sit down with your child and... Talk to them, so no doubt you ask them to see their understanding of the gospel. What are passages that come to your mind? What are your go-to Bible verses as you try to discern that your young child or your teenager actually knows the gospel and is a Christian? Uh, I would, well, I was going to say I would assume, but I'm not quite sure. But it seems like uh, here in our American Christian culture, and especially with the more orthodox churches, uh, such as our own, we, we would put paramount significance and priority on passages like 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe that one came to your mind, 1 Corinthians 15, because it does, in two verses, lay out the specifics of the bullet points of the gospel. This is the gospel, the only passage that explicitly says that. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried according to the scriptures, and then he was raised again according to the scriptures. And there's the word believe in there. So that, that passage does have all the bullet points of the gospel. Actually, what that passage does, it emphasizes the content of the gospel. It emphasizes the content of the gospel. Interestingly, it doesn't explain the meaning of the gospel, though. The emphasis is on the content. So If that's our only approach and we have a one-dimensional approach, then we might be uh, not being as faithful as we can be when we're talking with unbelievers, sharing the gospel with them. We can't just emphasize orthodoxy. We can't just emphasize the bullet points, even though they are essential, absolutely. The gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, but it's more than that. That's why we have the whole counsel of God, and that's why we have 66 books in the Bible and 27 books in the New Testament. When we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, we need to give them a complete, comprehensive, full presentation of the gospel and just bullet points from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. That's not going to be sufficient. 
because that is only the content of the gospel. What, what, what else do we need to give them? We need to give them uh, an explanation or the meaning of the gospel. You've you got to explain the meaning of those terms. That's why we have Isaiah 53. That actually explains the meaning of Jesus' death, which you don't find in 1 Corinthians 15. You have the objective statement that Jesus died but for sin, but it doesn't explain the meaning. We have to explain the meaning, not just give them doctrinal bullet points. Mormons, probably Jehovah's Witnesses, and Roman Catholics would all agree with us if we were just limited to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. They, they agree with those two verses at face value. Where we disagree is on the meaning of those passages. That's why we have to add not just the content of the gospel, but the meaning or explanation of the gospel, Isaiah 53 and the book of Romans. So we need to beef up our evangelism when we're talking to unbelievers so they fully understand the meaning of the gospel before they commit to it and put their faith in it out of fairness to them. So those are two key components. So hopefully that helps you to think about, okay, I'm giving the content and the bullet points and sheer doctrine, but am I giving the meaning of what all this indicates? And then there's, I think there's one more thing we need to give uh, to unbelievers as we present the gospel, not just the content and the meaning, but it's uh, what Jesus does for us today in this passage in Luke 14 that we're going to look at, verses 25 to 35. He doesn't just give the content of the gospel. Actually, some of the content isn't even giving, but it's a full-blown strong evangelistic gospel presentation or gospel call, but it's, the emphasis is not on the content of the gospel. Uh, the emphasis isn't even on the meaning of the details of the gospel, but uh, Jesus' emphasis here is on the cost of the gospel. And that is desperately needed, especially in American Christianity, the cost of the gospel. So when we go out Saturdays and share with unbelievers or as we have opportunity with our family members, colleagues at work, friends, wherever, we have to share the content of the gospel, the meaning of that content, and then also we have to come in and explain the cost of the gospel, the cost of discipleship, literally the implications of believing in and committing to Christ. And I would say that third item is probably the most neglected thing that American evangelical Christianity fails to do, is we fail to give a full comprehensive gospel by neglecting, as we talk to unbelievers, the cost of the gospel, the high cost, the severe cost, the extreme cost, the narrow cost of the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And it's interesting, if you take all four gospels and follow Jesus' ministry and his public teaching and you catalog all of it, it's interesting that out of those three, the content of the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, and the cost of the gospel, Jesus emphasizes the cost more than anything else. Especially, I mean, maybe you haven't noticed this as we've been going through Luke for 14 chapters now, and you traced it, and he's emphasizing the cost, the high cost. And ironically, that's what we neglect. What do we here in America present typically? Uh, easy believism, shallow Christianity, a truncated gospel. The exact opposite of what we're going to see with Jesus. Here, let me go ahead and read it. It's Luke 14, 25 through 35. And... Again, this is a gospel call. I would say a gospel call to be saved and be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then see how extreme this is. See how narrow this is. See how he's demanding for a call. 
to the highest form of discipleship, and he's explaining the cost to his listeners, the implications, the long-term implications. This is not shallow, easy believism. Verse 25 and following. Now large crowds were going along with him. Really, now massive crowds of thousands were following him. That's what it means. We saw that in Luke chapter 12. As he's on, he's on the move. He's headed from Nazareth down to Jerusalem to die. And he's stopping at various towns and cities everywhere along the way, even synagogues, if they would let him teach. Now, large crowds were following along with him, and he turned and said to them, so this huge, massive crowds of probably thousands, and he turns, and he's got a ready-made audience right there. And he let him have it. Here's what he said in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Yes, he said hate in verse 26. Verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. For what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle or war, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 men? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace with that other king. Verse 33, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile, and that salt is to be thrown out. He who, hears, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you were paying attention, you noticed some very extreme statements in there. Maybe if you have never seen this passage before, some of the terminology you might find quite alarming. Maybe you were offended. Hate, uh, verse 28, if anyone comes after me and does not hate. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross. He said that in Luke 9, 23. He said this repeatedly. A cross was, and this is not some kind of mystical thing. Oh, I've got to take up my daily cross, my daily burden. Oh, uh, the spouse that I live with, they're my daily cross. That's not what he's talking about. <laughs> oh, my children, they're my daily cross. No. In Jesus' day, in the Roman Empire, uh, cross meant one thing, and that was crucifixion, execution, death. So you could put that in there. Uh, whoever does not, whoever is not willing to die for me, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And these terms are categorical. Verse 26, cannot be my disciple. The end of verse 26, cannot. 
It's definitive. Verse 27, cannot be. Might not maybe, or you could be a quasi-disciple or a second-level disciple and a first-level disciple, and there's a hierarchy, and some are Christians and some are carnal Christians and some are uh, spirit-filled Christians. No. These are categorical terms, verse 33. So then no one of you can be my disciple. So he's laying down conditions for discipleship. It's actually, it's breathtaking. So just a couple of preliminary observations about this passage, just to kind of set our focus. Big picture is, by way of reminder, uh, we are in the ministry of Jesus, written by Luke in the 60s AD, good 14, 15 plus years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Luke, friend of the Apostle Paul, uh, has done work and talked to eyewitnesses and has put together uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ called the Gospel of Luke, and he's laying out, for the most part, Jesus' ministry for a three-year period in chronological order uh, from his birth to the cross, a resurrection, and ascension so that you might understand Jesus Christ and his ministry so that you might be saved from your sins. That's his goal, and he's been doing this. We're more than halfway through the Gospel of Luke, and we're actually more than halfway through the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus Christ, probably in the last six months of his ministry now, as Jesus finished two-and-a-half years of ministry in his hometown of Nazareth and the surrounding areas of Galilee. And now he is on a slow march with his apostles, his 12 apostles, the women who are committed to him, uh, the 70 other disciples, and then just a massive entourage of intrigued followers that are called disciples. They're even called his disciples, and they're following him. And he's accumulating disciples along the way as he's going really down south toward Jerusalem, and he crosses over the Jordan River into the land of Perea, and he's hitting the synagogues there and maybe meeting people for the first time. They are intrigued. They're amazed. He does miracles. He speaks with authority like they've never seen before. He's offering uh, a message and promises of God they've never seen before that uh, is too good to believe, almost bordering on blasphemy because he equates himself with Yahweh, God Almighty. And so there's a mixed multitude of people following him, but they're following him. And he's amassed thousands now by this time as he's just about to enter Jericho and then Jerusalem, and he stops every once in a while, either a synagogue or publicly right there to the crowds, uh, to give a teaching regarding his purpose and his person. And that's what he does here. After talking in the synagogue and then also in somebody's private home, he now transitions, and he's apparently this is a public speech he's given to thousands of people. Many of these people probably he's picked up along the way, and so he's going to reiterate a message he's been giving for three and a half years. Jesus was always saying the same thing. So if uh, Luke 14 seems extreme, it's not extreme for Jesus. It's actually normal for Jesus. This is what he's been saying from day one. That's why he offended the Jewish leaders on day one. They purposed from day one, we need to silence him, shut him down, kill him. That's been their purpose, according to the Gospel of John, for three and a half years. So he's not changing his message. He's not amending it. He's not fine-tuning it. He's not catering to people. He's just giving the truth. The hard truth, the narrow truth, the unconditional truth, the truth from God, divine truth, the truth that is counter to human intuition, but it's the truth. And it's the same message that Jesus has always been giving. So that's where he is in his ministry. This passage in particular is a gospel call, a gospel presentation. You could say it's an evangelistic message, an evangelistic call. The theme specifically, what is he calling them to? He's calling them to be his personal disciples. Uh, that's verse 26, my disciple. Verse 27, my disciple. Verse 33, my disciple. 
He's calling them to be my disciple, not just a disciple, but my disciple, a personal disciple, a real disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christian. This is a call to salvation, regeneration, being born again, entering the kingdom of God, being a child of God. That's what this means. Being reconciled with God. Laying down the conditions by which you can receive eternal life that begins now in this life. That's what a true disciple of Jesus is. This is an evangelistic call. So it's a call to discipleship. And in this text and in this passage, discipleship is synonymous with salvation. That's why this is an evangelistic call. Some people actually try to say, well, this isn't really an evangelistic call. This is a call to discipleship. And that's, it's a call to all people who are already believers, and it's just calling them to a higher level of discipleship. Literally, that's a very popular view. But that is the, a wrong view of this passage. Jesus was an evangelist. I would say that Jesus, first and foremost, was an evangelist. He came into this world to seek and to save the lost. That's what this gospel is going to tell us later. That was his purpose statement. So he's an evangelist. This is an evangelistic call. The evangelistic call is a call to discipleship, which means true salvation. That is the call. Uh, but we get confused here in our American Christianity, unfortunately, unfortunately, by those kind of statements. That No, this is just a call to a higher level of Christian commitment. It's not a call to salvation. So that came to be known as non-lordship salvation uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, that you can be a disciple of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus, and yet not really be committed. But you're a real Christian, you'll get to heaven. You just probably won't get a whole lot of rewards in heaven. You can be a real Christian, a real disciple, and actually produce no fruit in your life whatsoever, spiritual fruit. But you're a real Christian. You can be a real Christian and live like the devil and the world, but you're a real Christian. You're just a carnal Christian. Uh, that would be that view. I'm not exaggerating. That's a wrong view. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This is a call to salvation. This is an evangelistic call, and it's a, it's a radical one. I'd say here in America, typically, in many corners anyway, not everywhere, uh, you hear about friendship evangelism. Have you heard of that, friendship evangelism? I'm not here to knock it this morning, but you read this, Pat. This is not friendship evangelism. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the evangelistic calls of Jesus in all four Gospels, there is no friendship evangelism on Jesus' menu. This is actually... Extreme, almost militant, hardline, off-putting, uncouth, politically incorrect, ostracizing people. No, no wonder nobody was around to follow Jesus at the time he died. He ostracized them all with statements like this. And that's partly true. And he's not doing it out of purposely trying to ostracize people. He has a heart for sinners. He loves sinners. But he wants them to know the truth. And he wants them to truly know what they're committing to when they say, I want to follow you, Jesus. Because there's a cost to that. And out of fairness to the unbeliever, they need to know that. They need to know the real cost. Not just the immediate cost and the immediate benefits, but the long-term cost. That's the point of this passage. I want long-term, lifelong, eternally lasting disciples. Not short-term Fly by the seat of your pants, temporarily enthralled and intrigued and enthusiastic disciples who bail on me when they find out, uh, I'm not going to get what I want out of this deal. And there were plenty of those, weren't they? Who have their own agenda? That Judas. 
I think this message uh, perfectly suited for Judas, the Judases out there, or others who are just uh, self-deceived disciples, because there's all kinds of disciples. But anyway, getting back to the evangelism we have today, friendship evangelism, relational evangelism, relational evangelism? This is not relational evangelism because it could very well be that Jesus has no relationship whatsoever with the thousands of people in this audience. But it's evangelism. It's a call to repentance, believe, and be committed to him. Believe the truth, believe my words, believe in me, believe my work. It's not based on their long-term relationship at all. It's based on truth. That's the kind of gospel that we need to do and the evangelism we need to do is the truth. It's love for sinners, but it's the truth. There's soft evangelism, pre-evangelism. You ever heard of that? That's not in the Bible. There is no such thing as pre-evangelism. The only real pre-evangelism, if there was such a thing, is the work of the Spirit of God doing on the hearts of people in a preparatory manner to soften them, to woo them, to call them, to open their minds so they can understand the gospel. That's the only kind of pre-evangelism, and we don't do it. The Spirit of God does. But that's not how it's understood. There's non-lordship salvation that I already referred to as a form of evangelism. There's free grace evangelism. Free grace evangelism. I remember when I was in college at a Another college before I went to the master's college, it was a Christian college, and there was a chapel message, and the leader of this worldwide ministry got up and told all of us collegiates who are Christians, when you go out and share the gospel, whatever you do, don't tell the unbeliever about hell. And I was a brand new Christian. I'm thinking, what? I didn't know anything. I'm thinking, what? That, is, that doesn't sound right. Because when I became a Christian like two months ago, I was so thankful that God saved Jesus, saved me from hell. And I want to tell as many people as I can about that. So... Oh, that was free grace evangelism. You tone it down, make it a nice message. You, you appease the listener. You tickle their ears. You don't want to offend them. Or strategic evangelism. That's another one that's popular. Strategic evangelism. You've got to know the demographic and the blah, 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 and you cater to their needs and whatever else. And Jesus would have none of that. He didn't do that. Uh, Jesus did extreme evangelism, radical evangelism, dogmatic evangelism. Uh, we have people on occasion who say, Pastor Cliff, you're so dogmatic. You're so black and white. And I'm thinking, okay, well, there's a context to that, I hope. Uh, but I think just about every time Jesus spoke in the Gospels, he was dogmatic. Like right here, he is. I think just about every time God speaks in the Bible, he is dogmatic. Jesus was narrow, because truth is narrow. Jesus was dogmatic about the truth. It's always about the truth, and it's not your personality. It is, you should be dogmatic only about the truth. Jesus' words... Black and white, Pastor Cliff, you're so black and white. Well, hopefully I'm black and white where Jesus is black and white. And that's this passage. Uh, so today, if you walk away, say you've never been to our church before. Boy, that pastor was dogmatic, hard-line, narrow-minded, black and white. Then you got the message. Praise God. Amen. You understood Jesus. So, I mean, you can get mad at me if you want, but... Really, you're mad at Jesus if you don't like his words. So we, we want to be objective and represent what he said fairly. I don't want to muddle this up with meology. So let's go ahead and look specifically. Um, so really, this is an evangelistic call. It's an evangelistic message. And therefore, it is appropriate for everybody who is here today and within earshot of hearing the message today. If you're an unbeliever, this message is for you. This is a call. Jesus is calling you to follow him, to be one of his true disciples. For he came to seek and to save those who were left, that he, that he might die for them and be punished for their sin. And he did it out of love for sinners. 
and he, he is pleading and he weeps over sinners and he, he's calling you along with the Holy Spirit and the truth to woo you to repentance. That's Jesus' heart's desire. So if you're not saved, this is a call to you. If you already are a Christian, this is a call to you because if you're certain that you're a believer and you understand the gospel, I think we can all benefit from this to sharpen up our evangelistic skills and make sure uh, we are faithful and with integrity give a full comprehensive gospel to the unbeliever, not just giving them bullet points and content and orthodoxy, but we explain the true meaning of it, that what makes the Christian message distinct. And at the same time, tell them the implications of believing this, and that's what this passage does. There is a cost. There is a high cost. There is an extreme cost to following Christ and believing in Him. He, he doesn't want a simple makeover of your life. He wants a complete takeover of your life. That's what is at stake here. Well, let's look at it. And I, I put the, I mean, we could have outlined this in a few different ways, uh, but in terms of the flow and the heart of what Jesus was getting at is, I, I just wanted to emphasize a couple of things, but one of those was the choice. Jesus is laying before people a choice or a decision. Do we play a part in our individual salvation? I know I always trip you up with that, or some people uh, have a, you know, Hard time answering that question. Do we do anything to get saved? Yes, we believe. We repent and believe. What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So yes, we do something. We repent and believe. And the ability to repent and believe is a gift from God. And we can't be saved apart from hearing supernatural divine truth that first came from God. So we, we get it. We get the order. Election is true, calling is true, predestination is true. And the fact that we have a choice to make is also true, and we're accountable for that choice. Clear. That's clear from Jesus. And that's here. That's the emphasis here. This is not a passage about election. You want that? Go to John 6. That's not this passage. This is Jesus talking to the people and saying, you need to make a decision, you need to make a specific decision, and you need to make a specifically informed decision about me. You must decide and be deliberate and think it through and be careful and don't be shallow and superficial and don't be emotional and don't be self-deceived or blinded or pressured by your culture or guilt or your experience. This needs to be an objective, fully informed decision about following me. That's what he's talking about. And so he's appealing to the mind, to their thinking. And there are a couple of specific words that show that. So that's why I put on all five of these points there's a choice that needs to be made. So let's go ahead and look at these choices that need to be made uh, that end up in true eternal life and salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, starting point number one. When you make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him, it is a life-altering choice. A life-altering choice. Becoming a Christian, committing to the Lord Jesus Christ in a true manner will alter your life at every conceivable level. Some in ways you've never expected. Some you didn't see coming. Some... You're thinking, whoa, I didn't see this coming, and do I regret it or not? Or, ow, this hurts. Or, wow, nobody likes me. Or, I've been ostracized from my family and all of my former friends. That's what I mean by life-altering. And that's, these are Jesus' own words, verse 25 and uh, 26. He said to the large crowds that were following him, he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes after me, if anyone wants to be a disciple of mine. After all, you're following me. Why, why are you following me, people? That's the implication here. Maybe they just had a miracle. Maybe they just got free food, and they want more. Jesus knows that. He knew the heart of man. So he's, he wants to make sure you follow under the right conditions. 
This is kind of a vetting process. If you, it's interesting. If you look at all the exchanges that Jesus had regarding salvation and in the interchange of the dialogue and him giving a gospel presentation and any uh, inquirer who might be interested in salvation and following him, it's almost like he talks them out of it, which is counterintuitive to the way we do evangelism. Talks them out of it. He raises the bar. He lays down the terms that go against human nature. Completely unexpected. The, the rich young ruler. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man wasn't willing to do that. So it's life-altering, large crowds that he's talking to. And here's 26. If anyone comes after me and wants to be one of my disciples, a true follower of me, and does not hate his own parents. Hate. Uh, there's no way of getting around that word. It's used 41 times in the New Testament. It's always translated as hate. It does have different contexts. Sometimes it's good to hate things. Uh, sometimes it's used metaphorically or comparatively or relatively. That's, that is true, and that's the case here. Uh, Jesus isn't talking about a literal, emotional, psychological, moral hatred of these individuals. That is not what he's saying. How is he, Jesus using the word as uh, in hyperbole, hyperbolically? Because that's how Jesus taught frequently. It, in a, just simple terms, in an exaggerated way to make a comparison. To, to, me, to be crystal clear. So this is hyperbole. As a relative statement and comparatively. That's what he's talking about here. Because he does affirm in the Gospels, you need to love your parents and honor your parents. He rebuked the Pharisees for not doing that. So he affirmed, you need to love your, your parents. He affirmed marriage. You need to love your spouse. He affirmed children. You need to love your children. He's not contradicting himself. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's saying. He's trying to get their attention and make a very simple, clear, dogmatic point by way of comparison. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's laying down conditions of discipleship of following him. And all he's simply saying is there needs to be a priority love in your life, and that needs to be me. He's already said uh, earlier, and he reform, affirms many other times, that your greatest love needs to be for God, your creator. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You give exclusive love, exclusive priority to God, your creator, and him alone. And Jesus is saying the same thing about himself. You want to be my disciple? Love me above all else. Love me more than your own family. Love me more than your own spouse. Love me more than your children. If you love your children more than you love God and Jesus as a Christian, that is idolatry. If you love your spouse more than you love Jesus, that is idolatry. That, that's what he's saying. Put nothing above me. And if we take these words seriously into heart, this, this helps in our daily life. Especially you parents. I've got children. Uh, there's hardly anything stronger than a, a parent's love for the children, but you've got to keep it in perspective. What is a child? They're not yours. They're a stewardship and a gift from God, and they're a temporary gift from God. They're not yours. Every soul is mine, God said, not yours. Puts it in perspective. You do the best you can. You love them, but you, don't, you never love your children over your love for Jesus Christ as a Christian. Same thing with your spouse. Marriage is temporary. It's temporary. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal and forever. That's the priority. And it needs to be that way even in this life. Job did that. Remember Job? 
Job loved God more than he loved his wife. Job loved God more than he loved his ten kids. How do we know that? Because it says in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. He loved his children. He, he knew that they were sinful, and he would get up early in the morning and go make sacrifices and pray on their behalf and intercede on their behalf that they might be graciously forgiven by God. He loved his children. And then his children tragically died in an, an accident all at once. And somebody, a, a messenger came and told him that. And how did Job respond to the death of his children in, in a tragic, instantaneous, horrific manner? It's instructive for us. It says he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he bowed down, and he worshipped God. That was his response to the death of his children. And then it even gives a phrase of what he's saying out to the Lord. Uh, I, naked I came into this world, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job loved God more than he loved his children. He had it in right perspective. Then you go on to the next chapter, and then finally his wife, she's had enough. She may have been a believer, but she told Job point blank, or chapter 3, curse God and die. In light of all that's happening, all these horrible things, all your life, curse God, give up on God, curse God and die. That's what the wife said. He didn't turn to her and say, yeah, you know what, honey, you're right. He actually rebuked her on the spot. You speak as the foolish women. Shall we only accept blessing from God and not trials and suffering? What does that tell us? Job loved God more than he loved his wife. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, Unless you're willing to get to a point to abandon everything, all your relationships, uh, in terms of making me the priority relationship, you can't be my disciple. And that's what... uh, uh, the disciples, the 11 of the 12 apostles did that. Uh, Luke chapter 5 says, Simon, James, John, Levi, they all abandoned everything immediately to follow Jesus Christ. Judas never did. It looked like he did, but it was superficial. He kept his agenda. So it is a life-altering choice. Uh, so to believe the lie that if you become a Christian, your life is going to be better, that is a lie. That's misinformed. That's wrong information. That isn't true to Scripture. Jesus never said that. He said just the opposite. You might lose all. You might lose everything. You might lose your family. I know that happened to me. I, a very large family. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. I got saved, born again at age 19, went and told all my family members, Believe in Jesus. I just naively thought they would all believe, and I was completely ostracized. Completely. Whoa. I've read Matthew 10, 27 before and Luke 14, but I didn't really understand it. I do now. Matthew 10, 37 says, Jesus said the same thing much earlier. He who loves, and here he doesn't use the word hate. He He flips it around, but he's saying the same thing. It's the same thing. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. See, there it is. It's a priority love. So where's your allegiance, Christian? Is it to your your parents, your family, your kids, your whatever, your friends? Or is it to the Lord Jesus Christ and his agenda and his agenda alone, which you only find in the Bible? It's his work right here. It's objective. It's clear. This is basic to being a Christian. If this doesn't resonate with you, if this isn't your heart's desire, if you uh, resist this, if this seems unseemly to you, that, that's a problem. Time for some self-examination. 
It's love of Jesus before all. That's what being a Christian is. It's really on the face of it is so simple, isn't it? What's a Christian? It's loving Jesus more than anything else and anyone else. Loving Jesus. That's what being a Christian is. And then acting accordingly, and that's where it becomes difficult for us as sinners. So it's a life-altering choice. What else of a choice? Oh, and then the second part of verse 26. Father and mother and children... Uh, and brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. So not only are you uh, putting the love of Jesus over all the other relationships, but it's putting love of Jesus over yourself because we are, by nature, self-centered. When I was in Luke 9, I said, uh, Jesus said, deny yourself. What do you mean by that? It means, well, it implies that you love yourself. We all love ourselves naturally. That's in the Bible. That's in Ephesians 5. Newsflash, if you didn't know, you love yourself. You are your favorite person. And when I preached that sermon, I had a couple people come up and say, what, what do you mean we love ourselves naturally? I said, yeah, that's what Jesus said. No, we don't. I said, yeah, you do. And so we searched the scriptures together. I don't know if I was convincing, but I was just telling them, no, you love yourself. That's why you're defending yourself right now. <laughs> Number two, uh, not only is it a life-altering choice, but it is a sacrificial choice. Uh, sacrificial Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. And so this is related to the last part of verse 26. I already explained what that meant. The cross just simply meant it was a death uh, instrument. It was an instrument of death. So are you willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ? He wants you to live for him, but are you willing to die for him? It's up to him whether you will die in this life for being a Christian. That's what Peter had to learn from Jesus before Jesus ascended into heaven in the end of the Gospel of John, when he's talking about he implied that John the Apostle will probably live a long life for me, and Peter, you're probably going to get executed for me. And Peter's like, well, that's not fair. And Jesus said, well, you just worry about yourself. Leave that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Peter was probably pleasantly surprised in 65 AD when he got executed and ended up in heaven before John the Apostle. Huh. You beat me to the grave, and I beat you to heaven. But anyway... So it's, willing, it's just real simple. It's a sacrificial choice. That's the greatest sacrifice of all. Philippians 1.29. For a Christian, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering. And that's why uh, the four soils of those who believe, three aren't willing to follow Christ anymore because suffering weeds them out, vets them out. I don't like this. I don't like the cost. I don't like the pain. I don't like the suffering. I don't like being ostracized. I don't like being not liked. Uh, I'm going to bail on G like Joshua Harris, who was one of the most famous pastors in America in the 2000s. You may remember him, a huge, massive church. And after pastoring for 11 plus years, decides, oh, you know what? I don't think I want to follow Jesus anymore and be a pastor. I recant it all. Sad. Not a long-term committed, lifelong disciple willing to count the cost. And maybe, to, out of fairness to him, I wonder if he ever got the full message of what it would cost. Was he fully informed before he made that decision? We don't know. But that's what Jesus is trying to do here. He doesn't want people like that. He wants them vetted so they're fully informed so they know what the stakes are, which takes us to point number three, and that is it's an informed choice. It's not a three-minute spiel, can spiel with a four bullet points and then an emotional appeal, pray this prayer, sign the line or whatever, without full information. People need to be fully informed, and that's what he does with these two parables. He, by way of illustration, he's trying to tell people 
uh, people need to be fully informed before they make the decision to follow Jesus and be a Christian. They need all the information. It cannot be neglected. It can't be based on emotion, personal experience, growing up at a Christian home and expectations from your parents. It can't be based on guilt to appease your guilt or some kind of tradition. It's got to be fully informed based on all of the truth. That is the emphasis in verses 28 to 32. Just a couple of key words there. Uh, Look at verse 28 where it says calculate. Calculate the cost. Literally count the cost. That word is used, that verb, only two times in the New Testament. literally refers to pebbles that you use to count something, to do math in the olden days. It was objective. It was empirical. It was really uh, emotionless and passionless. And you're just going through counting the pebbles, the data, the information. In this case, the truth. It's not based on emotion. That's the point. This is based on clear, objective, definitive thinking. That's how you decide about whether you're going to commit to Jesus Christ. That's why humans should not be manipulated in any manner into a decision, forced or coerced into a decision, talked into a decision, play the uh, music and organ during church to get them uh, to make a commitment to sing the same verse. Oh, let's sing that verse one more time until I have seven more people come up front and give their life to Jesus. That's manipulation. That is not what he's saying here. Calculate. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down. There it is. Sit down. He uses that phrase twice. Sit down. Verse 31. First, sit down. Before an important decision, sit down. Slow down. Take your time. Put aside the distractions. Think clearly about the most important issue in your life. Knowing Jesus Christ and the destiny of your soul. Sit down down. That's interesting phraseology when we observe human behavior. You know how people don't want to talk about something and you can't pin them down? Whether it's you want to talk to an unbeliever, an unbelieving family member about the gospel, you just can't pin them down. Or another topic. There's busy bee. Would you just, would you just sit down so I can have your attention? So you can become fully informed. So sit down, calculate the cost to see uh, if he has enough to complete it, to finish. See, so finish, end of verse 30, finish. Jesus wants disciples who start out as disciples to finish. Judas didn't finish. He didn't finish well. Paul finished well, 2 Timothy. I've finished the course. And as you get older in life, you'll realize and look around that there are some people calling themselves Christians who aren't finishing. They're not finishing well. They're not finishing at all. They've abandoned the faith. Jesus wants people who will finish. And in order for them to finish well, they need to be fully informed on the gospel. The content, the meaning of it, and the cost and the implications. Sit down, calculate. Uh, The other key word about thinking, verse 31, uh, the king, when he sits out to meet another king in battle, he doesn't just go out willy-nilly into battle. He sits down. He has counselors who give him wisdom, data, information, the whole picture, how many resources he has, how many resources they have. That's the word for consider right there, used only six times in the New Testament. It's accurate information. The first word, calculate, was on clear thinking. The emphasis here is on accurate information information. So before you say, do you want to ask Jesus into your life? You've got to make sure that unbeliever has clear thinking and all of the information, and it is accurate information. You don't want them to believe and commit to the wrong thing. 
Did I tell the story? Well, if I did, I'm going to tell it again because it's just classic. You've got to have clear things. You've got to believe in the right thing and have accurate information when you want to commit to Jesus Christ and follow him. And I remember when my, uh, one of my boys was in kindergarten, five years old, and I took him and a whole bunch of other kids from another church I was at to go see Bible Man. Do you know who Bible Man is? He looks like Batman. He's got a costume and a cross and the sword of the spirit. And he travels the country and he's got videos. And we watched that all the time. And he was cool. And he had all kinds of Bible verses memorized. And I wanted to be like Bible Man. So did my sons who were very young. So we went to a local church and saw Bible Man give an hour-long presentation. And there were villain characters that he killed with the sword of the spirit. Take that! And they were off to hell and everything else. It's kind of scary. But... At the end, Bible Man gave a gospel invitation to everybody in the audience, particularly the kids. And there were many churches there, and there were hundreds of kids there. And so at the end, and he said, if you accepted Jesus today, if you want to follow Jesus, you accepted Jesus today after my prayer, can you come forward? And there were several kids from my group that went up that I was responsible for. I was the children's pastor. And I'm with some parents. And we got some of our kids going up there, and they're meeting with Bible Man afterwards. There's a huge bunch of kids up on the stage. And then later, one of the parents from the church came and talked to me and said, Yeah, Pastor Cliff, I just want you to know that my, my five-year-old, uh, he, he went up to talk to Bible Man today. I said, Oh, yeah, wow, really cool. How'd that go? And she said, Well, I just want you to know. Uh, I said, uh, Zachary, did, what did you do today? Do, do you understand what you were doing when you went up there? And he said, Yes. Well, what did you do? Well, I went up to receive Bible Man in my heart. <laughs> and so this, this parent was not happy. And they were not happy with me. And that is a true story. So we had to deprogram this five-year-old kid. Bible man is not real. They got to have the right information. Number four, which is verse 33. It is a comprehensive choice, and it's just straightforward. So then, none of you, none of you, Categorical terms can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. The Greek text literally is to say goodbye to all of your possessions. And what is life made up of? Well, it's me, my friends, and all my stuff. Right? That's life. What is Jesus saying? Well, following me means a comprehensive uh, surrender of everything in your life. You, all your relationships, and your stuff. And again, he's speaking hyperbolically, in extreme terms, to make a point. It's very simple. All he means is, at any time, you've got to be willing to do what I tell you to do. And if it, if it means getting rid of your stuff, then you submit to me and obey. Becoming a Christian means submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master, he is the Lord, and you are now a slave. This, isn't get, this is not getting saved by doing good works. That's not what he's saying. So, it's metaphorical or hyperbolic. And all he's doing is calling for full commitment. You need to be fully committed to me. Basically what he's saying is your whole worldview needs to radically change and get turned on its ear and do a 180 and go from you now own nothing and you're a steward of everything. You've gone from stewardship as a way of life or from ownership to a way of life to stewardship. And that's the Christian worldview actually. And that's a good test for your own life. Do you think about things as, oh, this is mine, gimme, mine, me, mine. If you have that mindset, that's not a Christian biblical worldview. It's No, actually, everything comes from God. That's what the Bible says. It's a gift from him. It's a temporary stewardship from him. 
uh, and I should be willing to share a lot of that stuff to others to bless them. That is the Christian ethic. That's what Jesus is saying. You own nothing. You're a steward of all, accountable to God and God alone, ultimately for it. That needs to be true of your life. But it's, and it does mean all. In this case, all means all. You need to renounce it all. And then number five, what kind of choice is this? Well, it's a consequential, consequential choice, a consequential choice, uh, and not just temporary consequences, eternal consequences. People's eternal souls are at stake. That's why Jesus was always so serious. You don't see Jesus laughing in the Gospels. Because eternal souls are at stake. This is reality. People die every day. Should be a reminder and a wake-up call to all of us. We're living on borrowed time. We could face our maker at any time. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. There are eternal consequences. What you believe about me in this life determines your destiny for all time. There are consequences. Uh, that's verse 33. So then, uh, or verse uh, 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good. I want, basically, he's just reminding them, if you're a Christian, you're the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. You're, you preserve society on God's behalf. You have an ongoing function. And salt, real salt, is always salty. But there's pseudo-salt out there. There's fake salt. And there are fake disciples out there. That's his point. Don't be a fake disciple. Don't be a temporary disciple. Don't be a short-term disciple. If you're going to commit, uh, you need to commit for the long term and the long haul. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, which doesn't happen, so this is pseudo-salt, fake salt, they actually had in the Dead Sea, looks like salt, and it's not. Tasteless with what will it be seasoned, uh, fake salt, it is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile, and it is to be thrown out, it is to be cast out. He's already explained in chapter 13 what he means by that. Cast out into eternal hell, outer darkness, which is real, and Jesus taught that. When you die, you either go to heaven to be with Christ forever, or when you die and you've rejected Christ in this life, then you go to hell forever. And hell is clear in the Bible. Jesus taught on it thoroughly. It's, it's eternal, it is conscious, it is physical, it is torment, it is painful, it is deserved, and it is based on what you think about Jesus Christ. And hell is something that we get rescued from when we get saved. I think it's legit. To, if you got young children and they're afraid to go to hell then you give them the good news of the gospel. And you know what? Believing in the gospel in Jesus Christ, he can rescue you from hell. He can't just, he doesn't just save you from sin. He can save you from hell and give you the gift of eternal life that starts now. What good news is that? Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.